Hi, I'm Janet O'Shea, author of Risk Failure Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. I'm in conversation with Francesco Duina, sociologist and author of several books, including Winning, Reflections on an American Obsession. So, Francesco, um, your, your book and mine sort of move in opposite directions in a way, um, with winning starting out with a focus on a macro issue of competition and moving to something more micro. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about your ethnographic reflections on sport in Denmark, um, mm-hmm. whereas Risk Failure Play starts with something quite micro, the example of sparring, as I've experienced it, and reads out to larger social and political concerns. Um, So one of the things I was interested in hearing about is as a sociologist and as somebody who's interested, it seems, in big picture issues, um, how did you come to write about sport? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you for having me, first of all, and I look forward to the conversation. That's right. I think I took a big picture analysis uh, perspective, and I think that um, you start micro, but in the end, I actually think we end up in similar places, and maybe we can talk about those. Uh, because ultimately you sound like a sociologist in many ways, actually, in terms of the way that um, you talk about the construction of things, the symbolic significance of things. But, you know, I I did write a book on competition. I did write it while I was spending a year in Denmark. And uh, I spent most of my life in the United States, but I was born in Italy and, uh, and was there until I was 14. So I've kind of been in different places, Canada included, and... You know, if you, as many people have impressions of Denmark and Scandinavia, it is, in fact, uh, um, whether you've been there or not, uh, you probably know, I have a feeling that it's not a particularly competition-focused society. And so um, it became very clear to me that uh, the contrast between the U.S. and Denmark were very strong. So I started with, um, with the Danish case. And um, inevitably, when you talk about competition, you talk about sports, right? And um, I love sports. I play sports. And so it's, you know, was obvious that I would be talking about, at least in part, sports and how they're structured, how sport events are structured, how different sports are structured, how American sports are structured, in particular, American sports like football and American football and uh, baseball. And uh, so it was a natural place to look into, even from a macro perspective. Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because, of course, um, sport becomes a microcosm for a lot of social values. Um, And it also it's so interesting because of the way in which competitive sport, particularly at the elite level, really sits between an activity and a performance. So it carries so much symbolic weight, which is is super interesting. And it's super interesting to think about the ways in which the same activity can be weighted so differently, like in the example of sports clubs in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. That's right. And um, yes, I think so. And they are, in fact, you know, I like to think of sports and I think your book, you know, speaks to that as well as, uh, you know, um, particularly professional sports. Um, as being injected with with meanings, right? So, you know, you and I could be playing tennis, um, you know, on the side and, and it doesn't have a whole lot of significance for us, or maybe it does, but certainly if, we, if you and I are playing tennis at US Open, right, uh, with millions of people watching, and maybe you and I are of, of different nationalities 
and um, you know, and we're playing, you know, succeeding there or failing there or behaving in certain ways there, as we saw with, for instance, uh, with Serena Williams, right? Uh, in the last U.S. Open, when she went, she she became angry at the referee, you know, and all the media attention went to that. And you know, what did he mean? Should she have done it? Did he say something about gender? Did he say something about race? So, you know, we inject significance that, that extends far beyond the, you know, the mere act of, you know, throwing, hitting a ball back and forth over a net, which is in effect what tennis is, right? Or any sport, right? It's just a thing moving around, right? So we definitely do that. And I think professional sports are extremely a good example. All you have to think about is, uh, or even not professional, but, you know, elite, as you mentioned. Think of the... Um, the miracle on ice in the United States with the, you know, uh, Olympics and hockey and the Soviet Union and how that was yeah. contrast between socialism and capitalism, even though you're playing hockey. So, you know. So interesting. As you were talking about that, I was thinking of exactly that example of the miracle on ice. And I'm, I grew up in the 80s during the Cold War, and I was actually at a Broadway show when, that, when the U.S. Uh, won against the Soviet Union in the hockey game, and they actually stopped the performance to mm. make that announcement, um, which is so incredible that, you know, the, the degree of kind of nationalist investment, and then, of course, right, it, it wasn't just nationalist, it was actually this sort of global contest between capitalism and Sorry. socialism. Um, but it was, it was it's such a kind of, I, I think that I ended up kind of investigating questions of, national identity it's not so surprising when i think of that being such a formative moment for me i can mm. remember it so clearly and of course that's not as you say that's not unique but it was just such a striking example of that phenomenon that like those athletes became representative mm-hmm. of something much much larger than themselves so the kind of weight of success and failure is so different than it would be you know when you just realize that in in effect this is really just a test of people skills moving narrow blades around on a slippery surface and moving a puck. It's, it's quite extraordinary, really. Right. And I would say that, in fact, it, you know, it isn't just, um, it is all, all that you said. And plus, in a more fundamental way, it's often about who is right and who is not right about things that have nothing to do with the thing on hand, right? So who, is, who has a better judgment? Who is, um, who is a better person, Right. Uh, who is more has a better mindset just because they happen to be playing hockey, but uh, we still say, well, they won there, therefore we expect and we imagine, we extrapolate that their excellence and their righteousness is goes beyond the boundaries of the particular thing. So, and we're disappointed when we find out that that is, that is incorrect, like with Tiger Woods, for example, right? He's held up, he's on cereal boxes, right? And he's all these things, and then he... You know, he messes up in his personal life, big time, right? And everybody's disappointed with him, right? They're disappointed with him as because they thought that his prowess in golf was a sign of excellence all around, right? And so that's kind of all, all you know, all kind of wrapped into one, yeah. And it's such an interesting issue. I'm taking that from the... Um, uh, from these more established sports into the realm of a little bit more, you know, alternative sport, if I can speak of um, these practices in those terms, but think about that idea in relation to martial arts and combat sport and how sport fighting sits in such a 
interesting and I think continually awkward way between this idea of like martial arts as this site of honor. I mean, com- coming out of the a, a fairly orientalist idea of um, Eastern traditions, um, Chinese and Japanese traditions specifically, but also just thinking even about, you know, Western boxing and that idea of um, the sweet science of bruising, you know, the, the, the kind of idea of it being very closely tied to notions of honor. And then at the same time, like, the idea that you know these people have to be they have to give it their all they have to have a killer instinct um and they're they're castigated if they take too much care in the ring um and, and then at the same time there's a little bit of that like the love of the enfant terrible you know with the kind of floyd mayweather and ronda rousey phenomenon that there's a kind of like with sport fighting a sort of egging on of um in a sort of celebration of trash talking a kind of like Mm-hmm. celebration of this sort of uh, a personal epic struggle between these two people um, where the, a kind of degree of frankly, you know, poor sportsmanship, bad behavior is celebrated. And then if it goes too far, that person's just utterly castigated and particularly when they lose. I think that's, you know, what we saw really clearly with the Ronda Rousey phenomenon. She was like the, the athlete that everyone loved to hate. And then, then she loses and then she becomes kind of just, you know, this, just ruthlessly trolled um, and it's, so it's a very striking kind of phenomenon. It's, that's a bad pun, sorry. Um, the way in which athletes, like, how we want them to sit between this sort of sense of, like, moral, um, mm. sort of moral status, and then we also kind of do want them to be the outsiders who, you know, mm. skirt the parameters of the rules. And so it's, uh, mm. it's, it's quite a double bind, really. It's interesting you should say that because um, I'm also struck by something parallel maybe is related to what you're saying and that is that i'm always struck i don't really watch um mma fighting and all that stuff except for the occasional highlight but i'm always struck by in boxing and those sports how you know these two people are gonna basically try to hurt each other right and uh and beforehand maybe there's a lot of trash talking and so on and so forth and then uh, as soon as the bell rings, they kind of hug each other and they, you know, they talk nice, they say nice things to each other, they respect each other, they honor each other. And it seems to me hard to understand how, you know, 30 seconds before they want to really hurt each other, right? And then 30 seconds later, they're kind of like on the same side. Do you have any insights for me? On that? I mean, I did, I did judo for a number of years, many years. And I also, as you say, I boxed at the uh, Woodlawn Gym that you refer, you know, in the south oh, side. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a little bit for a season. And, um, but even there, I was just struck by this. So what is the, um, what do you think explains that? Is it the same thing, sort of like we're in it, we have an honor code, we are going to, you know, beat each other up, but then when it's over, it's not personal. Is that how it works? I mean, these- I think so. I mean, I think it's, I think it's this multi, it's a multifaceted kind of phenomenon. I mean, part of it, you know, I'm not a competitor, but um, I I practice you know sport fighting. That that is like the kind of martial art that I'm that I'm writing about. So, um, I, my starting point was kind of similar. Not so much wondering about the professionals, but for like for me, like when I get on the mat with somebody, and sometimes we can spar really hard, and sometimes like we actually, I mean, we're definitely hurting each other, and occasionally we get injured, um, and then we walk away from it with this like incredible sense of community. And then, right, and then I watch professionals, and, it, and they're doing it at a, at a much higher level with this kind of real code of usually professionalism and respect. So I think, I think what's going on there are a couple of things. I mean, one, 
is the sheer euphoria of that degree of risk play. Um, that like in the moment where it's me against that other person, it can feel like mere survival. And I, from what I, my conversations I've had with people who have competed, you know, they talk about that, that there is like a degree of having a killer instinct. There is a degree of, um, a survival drive, um, that is like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm taking that person out because, um, that's what I need to do. Um, but there is, you know, such a euphoria that attaches to that kind of risk play. Um, and that opportunity to experience mastery, like even, even when somebody loses very often, there's that sense of like, wow, but I, I did it. I was, I was in that, you know, um, my colleague, uh, Alex Channon, who does this project called love fighting, hate violence was talking about someone who had this like amateur MMA fight or an amateur, amateur Muay Thai fight against like a much more accomplished fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lost the fight. In, you know, in front of his entire community. And at the end of it, he was like, that was amazing. You know, mm-hmm. so I think part of it is like just the opportunity to participate in that kind of risk play mm-hmm. um, is so exhilarating. But then I think the other part of it is this really profound sense of respect that attaches to that. Like, you know, that other person has worked so hard to get there and you know that they're so skilled. And you also know on some level they're not trying to devalue you as a person. They're pushing you as high as you can go. And in the sense, in the context of competition, yes, they're pushing you hard so that they can ultimately best you, but they are doing that in the interest of the game, in a sense. And they're doing that in the interest of, of exercising their own skills. They're not doing that to devalue one as a person. So I think there's a kind of inversion of meaning that happens there where if somebody hits you on the street, they're, they're ultimately, they're trying to make you feel bad. They're trying to take away your sense of personal respect um, and your, your dignity. Whereas when somebody hits you on the mat or in the ring, they're actually doing the opposite. They're saying, you know, I respect you enough to consider you a worthwhile opponent. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that sense of euphoria that comes from and that sense of, um, camaraderie that as soon as the match is done, you know, it, they're hugging each other. And I, I always feel that after I spar with somebody, like I want to hug them. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, um, so I think, um, yeah, I think it's a multifaceted thing that has to do with both experience and with the meaning that we attach to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in a way you're saying, in a way you're saying it's not really personal on the ring in a way, and it is personal afterwards in a sense. Indeed, uh, yes, yes. And I think it has something to do with, right, the way in which, like, the apparent violence of the action is, it's externalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're placing it outside of ourselves. So even if the punches are landing on that other person, it's not really that, it's not really about that person. I'm not trying yeah. to, to, to harm the person. I'm trying to actually explore the parameters of the game. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. But still, that will be true for any sport. The only difference here is that, um, you know, when you're doing that in basketball, it, you know, you, the point isn't to, you know, hit somebody on the head. So that's why it's a little bit, a little bit harder to understand in the case of, of physical contact sports, you know, like um, uh, martial arts sports, because the goal isn't for me to put the ball in the basket and if you're in my way, there are rules that I can get around you and so on and so forth. The goal is for me to knock you out. So, mm. <laughs> you know. Indeed, indeed, yes. So it's yes. a little different, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the, you, are, you are my objective. You yes. Are my objective. I'm, you know, so, 
you don't stand in my way. You are, you are, you know, you are the thing that I need to get rid of. You know, I mean, you. So, yes, uh, it just feels very different than it does. It feels in, in inevitably more personal to you know, in inevitably intrinsically more personal than skiing, competing against each other while skiing or chess or uh, well, chess actually I should say is perhaps similar, but um, it is a fight, but. Again, there is no physical component to it. So it's, you know, um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah. but I think, that's, I think that's why chess can feel very personal. I mean, I don't play chess, right. but, you know, from what I've um, read about it and, you know, watching films about chess and stuff, it seems to like it gets, it gets very personal and it gets very intense for that reason because I think it's the same thing without the release of the physical engagement. Yeah, okay. yeah I mean, I'm an avid chess player, and uh, I can attest to the fact that, it's, that what you're saying is absolutely correct. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's very personal, very quick, uh, and it's funny because uh, you know I play I play online, you know, chess.com, which is the big site, and I play these games. Uh, never, um, they're live, but they're moved per th- every three days or two days, you know. So I have games that I've stretched. With some people for years, you know, uh, not maybe not a game, but you know, stretches of games with some people for years, decades, even in a couple of cases, a decade and a half. I never met the person. I don't even know what they look like, but I am very personal with them. You know, I know their minds. I know how they think. Um, I, again, I don't. There are some that I don't know who they are. I mean, the, the picture of them is a horse. You know, so I, they have no no data about them whatsoever. And yet, uh, it's extremely personal. And if I lose, I'm absolutely, absolutely upset, <laughs> you know, with yes. them. And with them, you know, as yeah. if they did something to me, you know, even though the guy somewhere in probably Russia or somewhere else, right? And uh, it's absolutely, yeah, so Yeah, which, which is so fascinating, yeah, that idea. Because I think that's, you know, for, for me as an amateur uh, sport fighter, I'm always so fascinated on that, like, I'm seeing into somebody's mind. Mm-hmm. And that kind of view into another human being where other forms of difference and identity kind of fade away. It becomes about pure strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, I get this view of a person that I would never get in any other way unless perhaps I played chess with them. Because mm. it's a way of seeing how somebody else approaches problem solving. Correct. Correct. Yes. But ultimately, you know, that's, you know... Um, one of the things that I think about a lot is, is that the often we are try, we get involved in competition to figure things out or, or or address certain insecurities, you know, or doubts or fears or worries about ourselves. And in my view, actually, and we but we we don't know that, right? We are not really aware of it. And so we get we we, we get um, stuck with the competition, thinking that that's the important part. We, you know, say for example, I want to play again, or I want to right. But in fact, there's something deeper going on, and I, I believe that sometimes we, we we would be better off, in a way, attending to the deeper questions, and forgetting about the competition altogether, because it has nothing to do with the competition, right? It has something to do more with you know, for example, is capitalism better than socialism, or is is uh, am I a worthy person? Am I a good person? Am I an intelligent person? Right? And these tests that we see in competition don't really answer, don't really speak directly to these problems. And so, 
it becomes a mirage and it becomes sometimes an addictive mirage, but it doesn't, it doesn't solve the issue, right? And so then we're, we're stuck, we're stuck in these bubbles or systems, but in a way we probably would be, would be better off not busying ourselves with that. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. I'm just thinking about it because I, I'm not sure I want to complete. I agree, I agree with you on the fund with on the fundaments of the mm-hmm. the statement that like competition can often become a mask for something in the way that it gets layered with meaning, right. um, and it can become a kind of I think addictive mirage is a really good way to describe it, um, and because I've noticed this um, within the sphere of martial arts and other alternative sports. Um, I did quite a bit of rock climbing for a while. And like, there's a phenomenon where risk play can start to appear to be a value in itself, right. which I think is a related phenomenon that it, um, that there's somehow this idea that um, by engaging in risk play and by amping up the risk, I'm somehow achieving something or doing some good in the world. And I think that's a similar kind of idea that um, there's a kind of addictive quality and because certain kinds of um, merits accumulate like and there's certain kinds of benefits that come out of risk play or competition that then it seems like it's going further than it actually is um, but I'm not sure I want to let go of competition completely um, because I think there's a really I think there, I think it's a really interesting way of interacting with another human being um, is mm. to kind of to kind of put the skills out there and be sort of exploratory and say like okay let's see what you got, um, whether that is like a, a board game or um, a one on one sport or a team sport, and so I kind of I kind of think there's a because there, I think there's something about competition that it allows us to explore the game space um, in interesting kinds of ways and I think it's it is an interesting way of enhancing experience and putting us in the flow state. So I, I almost, I think that it's, I'm not sure that all competition is entirely the problem. I I think it's more that like how we layer competition with so much. And I think it's inherently, it's, um, it, it's value neutral, but it's also inherently a bit vexed. So I feel like it has to be handled with a certain kind of intentional irreverence Otherwise, it goes in exactly the direction you're talking about, where it becomes an emblem for national identity. It becomes an emblem for capitalism versus socialism. It becomes an emblem for personal um, accomplishment, you know? That's right. It becomes an obsession, right? And so then then absolutely, exactly. So then you can, um, you know, I like to think of the language of uh, doing some mental hygiene, cultural hygiene, you know, where you get rid of the unnecessary part. And you keep the good part, right? So, uh, you know, you play chess, you play, you climb, you know, rocks, you do your things, and uh, but you approach them with a a good mind rather than an obsessed mind, right? You are mindful of what you're doing in a good way, and so then uh, then this it, it's in the right place. The the problem is that in our society, you know, um, we put, you know, I have kids, you know, I've seen them. I've seen what parents do on the sidelines, you know, <laughs> um, it's unbelievable. You know, that's kind of why I wrote this book. You know, it's like, I can't just can't, uh, you know, um, it, it's as if winning is an end in itself. Sometimes it is, of course, but, uh, but without much thinking though, right. Without thinking about 
what does it mean to be a winner? What does it mean to be a loser? What kinds of what? How many types of losers are there? And I'm not saying in absolute. In, I'm saying in a particular society, how we construct these archetypes, right? You know, in the United States, you have like you know, four, there's three, four, five ways of being a loser, right? You can win all the time and lose one time and lose the big one like Al Gore, right? And then you're a loser, right? Uh, yeah. Or you lose all the time, and then you're a real loser. But if you lose all the time, and you try, and you try really hard. Maybe you're still a winner, right? We have all these things, right? And um, and we don't really think about them, so we kind of get stuck in them and then replicate them, you know, uh, for better or worse. Of course, they yield things for sure. And you know, I think I've, I think society, in a way, in the aggregate, benefits from squeezing people, you know. From pushing them, yeah. you know, if, as if it really mattered, you know. Uh, and of course, I'm, I'm competitive in many ways, of course. But uh, I think you know, society is in, in the aggregate benefits from, in part at least, by people working eighty hours a week and thinking that their success is is universally meaningful, right, for everyone, and they must achieve this. Well, it's it's, it's good for the your business maybe to have people like that, but is it good for the people, right? So. Yeah, and I think, right, and I think at a moment like this where we are facing political, economic, and environmental crisis, it's right. worth very seriously reconsidering some of those ideas around busyness and around um, always needing to not just achieve but to prove that we're achieving, um, mm-hmm. to to work obsessively. Um, all of those things, I think, really need to be reconsidered at this moment, yeah, I mean, you think about the Trump campaign, make America great again, right? America first, right? And Obama was the same way too, by the way. This is a lot less, but he used to say the same thing, right? He used to say, we can't be, the education scores came out and the United States wasn't doing well in math and science comparative to you know other countries. You know, America must be number one, right? We must be number one. And, and you know, on the one hand, that's great because, yeah, of course, if you think like that, you achieve a lot, but there's a cost to it. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, it's worth, worth thinking about what you really want, right, out of it. And yeah. What, what you don't want to keep. So. Right, for sure, yeah. And I think that's why I come, I come back to, I keep coming back to, to paradox, like, because I think competition, yeah. I think part of the reason why competition has to, needs to, to be beneficial, it needs to be handled with a degree of irreverence, a degree of care, is because there are these inherent paradoxes mm. um, within competition. And then I think reflection is the other big thing that you know i keep coming back to of um that it's winning appears to be a value in itself or competition appears to be a value in itself or risk appears to be a value in itself when we don't reflect on it mm-hmm. you know and we don't i was thinking about exactly those examples like um kids sports like i, I actually don't have my child in team sports um because i am so disturbed by like particularly with kids soccer, how so much is invested in these like poor kids. They're just, you know, they just want to run around and kick a ball. Um, And, uh, you know, I think a little healthy dose of reflection could be a substantial antidote to um, that phenomenon, but also a degree of reflection might lead towards, well, when we have kids on the soccer field and we're screaming at them that we have to win, like what are we actually teaching them? Right. In terms of being citizens, um, in terms of being you know members of a community, it's it's uh, it calls out for further contemplation. For sure, for sure. And what are we teaching them about 
how they should pursue their interests. So I often ask my kids when they come back and they do play competitive sports, I say to them, you know, in so many words, uh, did you get out of it what you wanted to get out of it? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, that when they were younger, now one is 14, one is 11, they would pause and wonder, what's he asking, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the um, 14-year-old is in high school and I heard the athletic director say something very wise, actually, at the orientation for sports. He said, you know, the only one, the one thing I want all parents to ask their kid to say to their kids after the game, after any any event, an athletic event, is, "I loved watching you out there play." Mm. That's it. That's all yeah. you need to. You don't need to say anything else. And um, there is research that suggests that the that student athletes, uh, the kids, young kids involved in competition, the one number one thing they they list when they're still you know, not in college but in high school and middle school and elementary school about the one thing that they dislike the most that they wish they could change about a soccer, their sport uh, participation is their ride back home. How okay. interesting. Wow. So, yeah, they, the parents ruin them. They ruin it. They coach them. They, you know, belittle them. They, they just, you know, they, um, they just ruin the experience, right? So it's worth thinking about, you know, what that is. So. Yeah. That that's that is super interesting, and I think that's that's one of the things I suppose that um, keeps me interested in writing about and thinking about sport is because it is such an important vehicle through which we learn social values, through which we learn our ethics, um, through which we learn how to have a, be accomplished in the world. And often we're not really getting the the healthy messages that we're supposed to be getting. You know, we're not really getting the sort of healthy values that we're told sport is supposed to induce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I totally agree. Absolutely. And I saw that you spoke about uh, Heusinger's uh, writing about play and sports. And anyway, that was uh, something that I noted. I, I love his work, so I appreciate the mentions in the uh, Heusinger, or however you want to pronounce him, in your book. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm... Yes, and thinking about like the merits of play as opposed to sport is also super interesting. Right. Yeah, um, there's so much more we could say about this, but I'm realizing we are pretty much coming up on 30 minutes. Um, so I think this is probably a good time to just thank you very much for the conversation. Um, we didn't get to talk about your most recent book about patriotism and the mm-hmm. poor i can't remember the name of it now uh, patriotic poverty is that what it's called it's a broken patriotic well that's for next time don't worry yes about it. <laughs> yes okay so yes uh, so thank you very much for the conversation i um, i really enjoyed talking to you um and thank yeah thank yeah. you very much i really appreciate it i appreciated reading your book and i wish wish you best of luck with with its um, rollout, yeah, I'm sure it will do very well.